Thank you for listening to the Highlander Podcast, where we have conversations about the past, present, and future of the outdoor industry. Thanks to Utah State University's Outdoor Product Design and Development Program for making it possible and for training the future product leaders of the outdoor industry. Learn more about the program at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of the History of Gear, Bruce Johnson tells the story of Yuko, a company known for developing candle lantern, ice cream makers, and a variety of other outdoor products, and their influence on iconic companies like Jansport and K2. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase, and uh, thanks for joining us for another episode. Um, in particular, today we're we're doing another history of gear episode um, where we talk about the people and products um, in the the past, present, and future of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. And uh, I have a guest today who we haven't had on for quite some time. Um, really the the originator of of the history of gear himself bruce johnson author historian um and and friend of the program uh, it's great to have you back yeah thank you chase it's really good to be back there's been lots of water under the bridge since we last talked about some of those last companies like msr so yeah today i'm anxious to talk about a whole different kind of company well, since it's an outdoor since, country, but it's a different kind. Well, since we last talked, I, again, a lot has happened in the last few years um, since we started this project um, and recording some oral histories and, and diving into the history of companies. Um, but you've been busy the last year and a half or so, and again, you know, nothing new for you. You've written a few books, but you have a new book coming out, or it's come out. Um, all about a company that we're going to talk about today. And I'll let you take it from there and maybe give us an intro into, into this book you've written and the company you're, you're uh, talking about. Yeah, this started out as a different kind of book because I didn't initiate the book. I didn't initiate the research. I was approached by the company itself because their 50th anniversary was coming up and they wanted my typical skills of doing research and dredging around in the early days uh, before some of them were even born and creating that part of their story, which has wound up in this book. The company's name is Yuko, which U-C-O, what a weird name. It means something totally unrelated <laughs> to to uh, 
the normal thing like we might do on Hollybar or Jerry or Frostline. It's, uh, they started off producing urethane framed mirrors. Hmm. Just two engineers. I'll put on some pictures here, but uh, <clears throat> they were founded in 1971. It's the candle lantern. Their signature product for decades has been the candle lantern. When the company contacted me about this project, I was a little baffled. Who is this company? I really didn't know of them. And they talked about candle lanterns, and I said, well, I have one. REI made it. And the, the, the guy who owns the company now, Keith Jackson, said, well, turn it over, Bruce. <clears throat> so I'll just do this. You can't read it. But on the bottom, what's it say, Bruce? Oh, it says Yuko, Redmond, Washington. So as I began to dig into this company and its history and uncovered that they've sold over 2 million of these candle lanterns and are still selling them, I questioned what is the attraction of candle lanterns that goes on year after year, decade after decade, why in the world are people into this kind of thing? Why do they buy them? What's the deal? And I thought about it and I came up with, oh, this is really deep. This is profound in a way. If you go back in human history, um, what got civilization going, it was finding the ability to have fire to make fire, to have fire, to keep fire. And after you had the camp fires, then you had, well, how do we light up our cave or light up our candle? And that brought the early predecessors of the candle lantern into being. And uh, what Yuko did is perfect the design, really, and uh, get really good at marketing it. So there's something really primeval. And when I tell a story about this, I always go to, I'm solo backpacking up on the Pacific Crest Trail. It's been kind of a blustery, kind of a dark day. I get in my tent and it's dark in there and I'm all alone up in the middle of the wilderness. It feels a little scary, actually. You could start fantasizing that there's, critters out there maybe even worse than critters and I had that experience once actually well you light up a candle lantern and suddenly you have a warm little cozy environment so <clears throat> this guy here is a candle lantern the original design it pulls open like this and will burn for hours hanging from the roof of your, of your uh, tent so in in this company, as I already said, it started in a really strange way. It wasn't about candle lanterns at all. This is one of the founders, Greg Draper. And he was a family guy. He'd already started three businesses, two of which had failed. One minor success. Uh, he, he'd uh, sold off to somebody else. But he was bound to determine he wasn't going to work for the man. So 
he and this other guy who was also an engineer, Jim Blake, started this tiny little company on $3,000 in the bank and started making these urethane-framed mirrors. Uh, so Yuko actually stands for urethane company. So that is indeed a strange place for a Bruce Johnson history of gear story to start, I know. But it, uh, it changed. Within a year, things started to really change. That's one of the mirrors. Okay, so Chase, do you happen to recognize who that is? Oh, is that is that Murray? Yeah, yeah, that's Murray McCory, the founder of Jansport. He came skulking around downtown Seattle looking for a company that had manufacturing machinery, metal. Let's talk metal here. Uh, things you could drop on your foot. This isn't fabric. This isn't sleeping bags and tents and down parkas. This is the company he was looking who could do these right here. These metal fittings that held together their frame packs. They're here and here and here and here and down in here. So... <clears throat> There commonly were six or eight or even 10 of these fittings per, per pack, and Murray wanted bunches of them. And this was to be a, a big product, believe it or not, for Yuko. Tens and tens of thousands of these things manufactured up until frame packs kind of started going out of style, which was uh, early 90s, let's say, somewhere in there. So now they had moved on past these urethane mirrors. And this picture here, let's talk about it. There's Murray again. This is a, a promo thing uh, from Jansport. There's Murray. There's his cousin, Skip Yowl. There's Jan, Jan of Jansport, who was at the time married to Murray. And who's this guy here? This big, big guy. Jim Whitaker, first American on top of Everest. So he's buds with these guys at Jansport. K2, story has it that he had some kind of a sales rep thing going with K2, which at the time was located right in that same area of Washington, of uh, Puget Sound. So at the bottom here, it says K2 Jansport. So one thing led to the other. Murray here already knew Greg Draper at UCO. K2 needed metal edges for their skis. Oh, here's a company that manufactures metal stuff. So now we've connected together UCO with another market, a big one downhill skiing market. One thing led to another again, and now they're manufacturing these highly technical, machined, 
ski boot buckles. And they're manufacturing them for the big companies like Lang, K2, Koflak. Uh, and you've got Greg Draper off here in Austria making a sales call. So things have really mushroomed and changed this company. Uh, this is still in the 70s, but now they've become associated with a big outdoor brand, Jansport. Uh, they're into a big chunk of the downhill ski market in kind of a funny way that you or I probably wouldn't have thought about, but it's uh, making thousands and thousands and thousands of these these uh, buckles. And then it led into things like making the interiors of Scott boots. Uh, that was more of a urethane thing. So here we get back to Jim Blake and his skills with urethane. The next product that came along was an odd little thing. Have you ever been out on a hike and you're trying to balance your camera on a rock or something? Mm-hmm. Trying to take a picture that includes you of you and Mount Rainier or you and you know something like that. Yeah. Well, this this one fellow whose name was John Congdon was in that situation on the north side of Mount Rainier with his friend. He said, "Man, I can do better than this. I have some skills with engineering and plastic." So <clears throat> he invented this, and it was just a little family business. They're all folded up, folded up holds down and it's very light you can also strap it to a tree if you want and this became a product that Yuko carried again for decades and it was a small product but over the years the the number of units sold gets enormous and it's a part of the company's um, continued existence that they've got yet another product that goes on year after year after year. So this is another outdoor product. Uh, it's not a sleeping bag or a tent or, or a parka like Sierra Designs and Holly Bar and all, all the rest. But to me, it was so interesting to discover that there are other aspects to the outdoor industry than just all these things like we first talked about in in our early podcasts. So now for the big tamale, oh, it can screw on top of a regular photo tripod too. Uh, I'll briefly mention this before I get on. Uh, That's one of the really early candle lanterns uh, from Europe. It has a mica as its windows and a terrible thing to burn candles that makes a huge mess but that's what they had uh candle lanterns were not a brand new idea they had been around okay so enter early winters early winters was a seattle specialty mountaineering company and 
based right there in Seattle. They started out tiny, making one product, this tent, called the Omnipotent, and became known for that. At first, they were so small, they were cutting, the founder, Bill Nikolai, was cutting these tents out uh, on a ping pong table in a friend's basement with an exacto knife and selling them at street fairs. But they had started to get bigger and more well-known, uh, went on a big mountaineering trip up in the North Cascades, got in a terrible storm. They had a French candle lantern and were so unhappy with its performance that they set themselves a goal. We're going to design a better candle lantern and start to sell it. So they, too, found Yuko, just like Murray McCory had, and said, here's our ideas. Can, can you, with your expertise in metal and stuff, can you, can you make this, this lantern? And a guy named Gary uh, Cleese, this guy, who was a Boeing-type engineer guy, um, he designed it. And they put it into production. At first, just this basic form that I showed you myself, my own one. Later on in time, they invented little ones with many colors baked on and very pretty. And this one here that makes a ton of light and heat. And they sold it or made it for early winners. Early winners sold it. It had good sales, uh, but not enough sales because they were still pretty small companies. So Yuko thought to themselves, they're making, here's a whole bunch of the bodies uh, being manufactured. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so Yuko said, we're going to design a modified version that's a little cheaper to make and with, with our own type of design. And they marketed that to REI, which then started a whole cascade of things going on with marketing to a whole bunch of the other major chains. So this one's just got a label on it, REI. And that's how you'd see it on the REI shelves. But it was coming from Yuko. And you could go to L.L. Bean and find L.L. Bean on the label. And on the bottom, it would still say Yuko. And you could go to Cabela's. And you could go to, you know, Bass Pro Shops. And pretty soon, all over the U.S., you could get Yuko-made candle lanterns and it as i said became a real mainstay of the company financially and uh, increased their reputation so now i will talk a little bit about this guy here not, not this guy uh we're up on mount rainier this is a, a sherpa who is visiting this is keith roush who was also in the mix Keith Roush was actually in the mix. Uh, you probably 
are aware that there are trade trade reps who go around to the different retail stores and so forth, uh, pushing products for the various companies. So Keith Roush was one of those. And so he was pretty connected to Jansport, and he was pretty connected to K2 and numerous other companies. And Greg Draper had begun to know a little about him, and they, you know, exchanged pleasantries and so forth. But in the mid-80s, Greg Draper picked up the phone and contacted Rush and said, listen, I hear there are these things called trade shows, and I hear that you know something about that. So I would like you to help me out. How, how do I get into the trade show? So that began a partnership between Greg Draper and Keith Roush. There's Keith at uh, an outdoor retailer show with none other than a very famous American mountaineer who has climbed all the 8,000-meter 8, 8, peaks. Uh, he's from our area here in the Seattle area. Ed Vister's um, very, very famous guy. So these guys are going around the trade shows together, spending nights in motels together. Uh, leads me to want to tell a little bit of a story about the early trade shows. The, the early trade shows in the very early days, they were basically all about downhill skiing. And if a company showed up, whether it was Sierra Designs or whether it was Juco, uh, they were stuck off in some little corner with a little table of their own. And this fellow, Keith, was very involved in those shows. He had weight. He had influence. And gradually, over the years, we got to where we are now, where we have a winter show and a summer show. And the outdoor gear manufacturers like all the ones you and I have ever talked about. That's, that's where they got going and or got prominence. So this was a big deal for Yuko to get involved in the shows. It was going strong going to the trade shows until 1999 when a very unusual F2 tornado hit the trade show. I don't know if you ever heard about that, Chase, but um, it actually uh, killed some people, injured a bunch, and completely decimated the Yuko booth, which was down in this corner. You get a scale of things here. This was at Salt Lake Outdoor Retailer? Right. Wow. Okay. I, I do remember the tornado. That was a big deal for us in, in Utah, considering that never happens here, least of all in downtown Salt Lake. Yes. Yes. It's pretty unbelievable. Uh, you can see all the little port potties lined up here in a truck and three people talking. Um, so Greg Draper was still the owner uh, of Yuko at that time. Uh, Jim Blake had kind of phased out by that time. And this was a real blow. Um, they pulled out of going to trade shows until 
the new owner bought the company in 2005, and that's the guy I worked with, Keith Jackson. That's Greg Draper on top of Mount Rainier. He was kind of an all-around athlete. Uh, but the point of the story is that a number of the Yuko employees over the years did climb Mount Rainier. They did enjoy being on the mountain, which nurtured a number of other connections because Jansport held annual get-togethers up on Mount Rainier at uh, Camp Mir, 10,000-foot-high hut, if you will, up on Rainier. So that became another aspect of Yuko being involved and staying involved in that cadre of, of outdoor gear people, different companies. So this moves us on to a time period in the, in the very early 2000s, where Greg Draper, who was also quite the clown, his wife, uh, his production manager, Dino, they were all having these annual parties out at Greg's place on the lake, on, on Puget Sound, heavily attended by REI people every year. And this is their, their REI rep at the time, Doug Peterson. Doug Peterson's wife was a Girl Scout leader. Another unbelievable story about how gear might get invented. And they were trying to make ice cream in metal coffee cans. The rock salt, the whole thing you've heard about. And it wasn't working very well so they they had doug here go to these people who are manufacturing people say can you design us something that would be fun and easy that led to this thing the ice cream ball <laughs> in one end you open it up pour in the rock salt the other end you open it up and pour in the cream ice cream mixture and roll it around this became a huge product, super successful. Forbes magazine, all kinds of people highly, highly uh, gave it their highest ratings and so forth. Uh, Forbes, Consumer Reports, blah, blah, blah. So they had a huge financial success with this thing. Okay, Greg Draper, about the time that he sold the company to Keith Jackson, there's Keith Jackson and two of his main guys. They're having some sales meeting with them. After a while, they were producing the ice cream ball. Uh, the main part of it was produced in Asia, which was a new thing for Yuko. And, and of course, that was something that nearly all of our outdoor companies ended up doing, right? Starting off in America saying, we're going to make all USA and then reluctantly following the tide uh, over to Asia and having their stuff made um, in Asia. So Yuko was not unusual in that, in the big picture. So this is a company that started 
making urethane mirrors and got moved almost uh, um, by accident, you might say, into the mainstream of making outdoor products. More than 2 million candle lanterns, nearly 20 million of the candles that go in them. Under Keith Jackson, they started really broadening out their vision. Uh, they were in, uh, back to attending trade shows, including in Europe. The big shows in Europe um, got involved with a couple Scandinavian companies, like the ones here that makes Esbit, the little Esbit stoves with the little tiny fuel pellets. Uh, more than 100 metric tons of esbit fuel sold. Um, they got involved with a, a Swedish company, Moranis, <coughs> selling ungodly numbers of knives. Uh, th this company doesn't make just a knife knife. It makes all sorts of things like wood carving knives and fish fillet knives and you name it, all kinds of specialty knives. So it's an outdoor product. Um, people like me who are used to thinking about outdoor companies as manufacturing a bunch of soft goods are a little like, huh, knives? <laughs> really? <laughs> then they broadened out some more. They looked at the humble spork, which had been around, of course, for a long time. And most of us have seen it this way, where it's spoon on one end and fork on the other. They developed a design that nested together that was actually two separate things. It was spoon on one end, saw blade here, little knife-like thing here fork here, nest together, this little thing could hold it together and you could hang it off of a tree or something. And remember, candle lanterns bringing fire into the night. They got another product line going, which was um, matches. Matches for the outdoors. Not not little common matches, not even the larger matches you could buy at Safeway, but matches that <laughs> were insane. And again, selling millions of these. Uh, this one here is, is a long burning match. Let me get it oriented here. Long burning, long getway in there. In, in your stove so you don't get your fingertips burned off. Um, and a whole line of stormproof matches. This little guy here is like a flare. You light that off and it will literally stay lit. You plunge it into the water, bring it back out of the water, and it relights itself. So a true stormproof uh, survival type match. They continued their 
development in this area. So here's a knife. And in the base of it, hidden away, think back to the early days of America, flint and steel. This is a modern type of a flint, modern metallurgy going into it. And I can't really demo it here, but uh, by, by this kind of thing, you get a great big old spark going. And it's right there in your knife. This gives you some sense of the variety of things that they were doing with these matches and are doing with these matches. I had had, of course, in my, my pack, I had always had a little mat, uh, a, a waterproof case with some matches I bought in Safeway. That, that to me, that was my, my survival matches, but this is a whole new world here. <laughs> and those matches were getting lots of really good reviews. That led them to go even further afield. Some of these reviews of these type of products that were, uh, again, pushing the envelope. Um, this is a company that, uh, under Keith Jackson, was not happy with just staying put with a few successful products. They're always finding new products, new ways, experimenting. They had some flops. But um, recently, they've discovered, in recent years, a big market for little outdoor grills that people can use car camping. Uh, this one's small enough you could actually take it backpacking if you wanted to. Folds flat. Um, these are illuminated tent stakes. You press here, and there's two different colors of LEDs that come on. Um, just experimenting. And the company as a whole has made 50 years. And to me, the thing that I noticed, there were so many of the early companies that made made gear that ended up flopping. Like even Hollybar flopped. It got bought up because it was so successful by a company, Johnson Wax, that really didn't know outdoor brands and outdoor customers. And the company went under and that was that for Hollybar. Um, but Yuko has always adapted, and I think that's one of the keys to success in this kind of business. If you can't adapt to changes, if you can't discover new products, uh, after a while you may find yourself gone. And I've seen it with a lot of the, the companies, both big and small, that aren't here anymore. 
Um, there's that, that grill I showed you. Now, you wouldn't think there was any room for Yuko to get involved in the headlamp market, right? And I was dubious. They sent me this. And I had a really good high-tech black diamond one. But I found that this this little this little guy definitely had a niche with me. It's really super easy. It doesn't have a bunch of modes. It doesn't have a bunch of weird things going on. It just works. It has two brightness levels and easy to change the batteries. Who knows? Maybe it's not like waterproof to the nth degree, but uh, to me, it's it's got a place and 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 I like it. This is a Yuko candle lantern. You won't recognize whose hand this is, but this is from the movie Wild, which is one of my all-time favorites. That's Reese Witherspoon's hand uh, in her tent reading by a Yuko lantern. That's the book. And that's the copy here. It's 156 pages long, and it's really just uh, lavishly illustrated. And uh, the team that I worked on, there were people on there who were like really, really good at book design. And, and uh, there was an authentic publisher part of the team. And so it wound up being the best book I've ever been involved with. That's not a spread that you're meant to read, but uh, just gives you an idea. This is a funny little story. That's Keith Jackson, uh, the guy who bought Yuko from Greg Draper in 2005. That's Doug Peterson, who's, whose wife uh, uh, had the ice cream ball idea. And what you see here is fire coming out of a book. Um, he horrified our, our team one day by saying, isn't there a way we could like have the book burst into flame when we got to the matches page? <laughs> and we were like, liability, liability. <laughs> you can't do that. Well, of course we didn't, but he went ahead and had fun with the idea and actually this isn't like the real book but it's the same size and there's a little thing in here that actually does light up with a fire <laughs> this is from our our little uh book party um I won't go into all the personalities, but here's me. And that's the REI rep and his wife who invented the, or brought forward the ice cream ball idea. That's the daughter of um, Greg Draper, who had passed away. I didn't ever get to interview him. And this is something in the history of gear that I've encountered fairly often where 
the principal, the founder, has already passed away. Mm-hmm. And so then my search is to find somebody else close to them. It could be a family member. It could be somebody who uh, worked for the company, was a manager or, or whatever. You probably have a few questions built up. So go ahead and shoot. A couple, I guess, thoughts initially is um, interesting how a company like this gets thrust into the outdoor industry um, or pulled into it by others who are are kind of these key individuals, a Murray McCory, for example. Um, you know, I, I just an, an interesting thought there that there isn't really a natural path into the outdoor industry even to today. Uh, people who want to work in this space kind of have to forge their own path and find a way in and, you know, get their, their toe in the door and, and then the rest of the body. And um, it, it's interesting that even at, at that time too, or it's, you had other companies that kind of got pulled into this space and maybe didn't have plans originally to work in the outdoor industry or make products for, for um, those of us who love the outdoors. So I guess that's a first um, observation. The second um, that connection to early winters is just so perfect, isn't it? Cause I, mm-hmm. I think of Yuko and I see the, all the accessories that they share, um, in their, in their, um, uh, in the catalog that you shared and, um, from knives to matches to the candle lantern that, you know, all these little add-ons and, and, um, accessories, which early winters is so known for, right. Um, mm-hmm, this idea mm-hmm. that their 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 catalogs would be full of all sorts of accessory products that you would you would purchase. I don't know if you see a, a comparison there or or some similarities or a kinship between the companies because of that. Um, but I thought that was an interesting connection uh, with early winters pushing them to to create a candle lantern um, that I could very much see um, being a product. Um, in their catalogs? Well, my response to that would be uh, most outdoor companies face that challenge of your high quality company like Holly Bar or whatever you are, wilderness experience, you make a real high quality durable pack or sleeping bag and it's going to last for years and years and the the customers aren't going to keep coming back to buy a new one every year. So you have to have some consumables in your line or you're in danger of like, you're not going to make it. Right. So, uh, you go, obviously the, this, the candle lantern itself is, you're not going to replace that every year. Uh, but you're going to go through candles. So they sold 20 million of these. They're very specialized candles. They're not just off the shelf candles. Right. They burn in a certain way. They don't burn well outside of the environment of the interior of a lantern. Um, The matches, of course, they're consumables, right? And so forth down the line, you've got like a grill that's going to last for a really long time. Yes. But then Yuko has many other products that have to keep getting re uh, re rebought by their customers. So it's a, it's a nice balance that I think most companies, they have to balance out in some way. And early winter certainly did that. Right. Um, just all these interesting, really kitschy products. Uh, I don't think Yuko 
tends toward the real kitschy things, you right. know, the Chinese bird kite and, you know, all these things that they were into, but uh, practical things. Yes. You go in that way. I, the other thought that I had as you were talking was this idea of collaboration in the industry and, and, you know, uh, Murray McCory going to, you know, a uh, Yuko in Seattle or, or, or in Washington, you know, just trying to find someone who could help him make what he needed. Right. The, you know, yeah. different parts for his products and, and that, that spirit of collaboration to help build these different companies and, and how they become so intertwined in a lot of yeah. ways. It reminds me of, yeah. it seems like there's a number of other similar stories throughout the history of gear, like, like I, you know, the oval intention, right? The the designers mm-hmm. of that product going to Easton Aluminum to to you know someone else who could help them bridge the gap and find a solution to a problem that they were encountering, and then you know using that technology behind aluminum aero shafts and integrating that into tent poles. So I, I yeah. think that spirit of collaboration is um, and dependency on each other is interesting, and you see it in this this story as well. And you see it's a, a sort of a mutual give and take of sorts with Jansport uh, as Absolutely. an example. Jansport and Yuko, Yuko were engineers. They wanted to make things out of metal and stuff that you could drop on your foot. But even they, at some point, because they had this established relationship with Jansport, when Jansport started to get overwhelmed with pack making, they went to Greg Draper and said, can you help us with this on your, on the smaller packs, you know, the, the easy packs, like the book packs that they were so famous for. So Greg Draper went across the street, the story goes, and uh, more or less ripped off some employees from another company who were a sewing company. And next thing you know, they're making packs for several years. Hmm. Interesting. And once once a company has a partner, it could be that the partner causes them to grow past where they thought they were going. Right. Yeah. In a in a new direction. So I did think that was quite interesting when I discovered that. It was a story I discovered along the way with my research. Oh, they they were sewing Jansport packs? Tell me more about it. I guess my, my other question for you is what do you think the larger impact of a company like Yuko is besides, you know, creating a, you know, a, a great product like the candle lantern and, and, and the other products that you mentioned, what, what do you think some of the larger impacts of a company like this is? I mean, it's so unique to have a company hit 50 years old. Uh, it, it, they must have larger impacts that you see um, affected affecting the larger industry. Um, what do you think some of those key takeaways might be to me what what i see is it's a success story that is based on a company that's willing to adapt and grow and adapt and keep looking and keep expanding right now they they aren't even manufacturing things anymore a few years ago they they exited their last big metal uh, uh, lathe type machinery, and and now they're a distributorship basically, working out of a gigantic warehouse. Mm. Um, 
products coming and going all the time, uh, big shipping department, of course. And they remain successful, but they've had to respond to the times, uh, the, the shifts in the market, and, um, and, and have a vision that's broader than, if you don't have a vision that's broader, chances are over some period of time, you'll get pushed out or fall down or somebody will come along with something a little better, but your line is, is too limited and you, you were too dependent on it. And next thing you know, you're out. Right. Right. Well, it seems like they also embody a larger shift that I'm seeing in the industry towards making products for more more people, maybe even mm-hmm. casual users of outdoor products, right? Let, let's make an ice cream maker, you know, for, for people who are just outside and, and, um, or, or the, the cooking products that you mentioned, you know, some of these smaller packable stoves remind me a lot of what we're seeing from a company like Snowpeak and that company uh-huh. being very focused less on the extreme outdoor user, the person who's going to summit mountains and more on the person who just wants to gather with friends and family outside and enjoy good food together in outdoor spaces. Right. So they, it, it also, uh, you could tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems like a company that's moving more that direction towards let's mm-hmm. make products for kind of the um, what seems like a growing number of people who just want to get outside um, in a lot of different forms. It doesn't necessarily have to be in an extreme way. Mm-hmm. I could take that uh, all the way back to Jerry Cunningham. Uh, his values clearly stated in his catalogs and his booklets were always, yeah, we make these extreme expedition tents and all that, but we're all about getting the family out, carrying light loads, uh, non-high-tech tents. Just everybody gets out and has fun. Um so that goes way back. Yeah. Um, and Yuko n- never had a vision that they were going to be for extreme mountaineers. Right. It was always about just stuff that outdoor people could use and enjoy and that had, in, in many cases, a safety value. Right. Absolutely. Well, this has been this has been great. I've learned so much about about this company. Um, I'm sure for you it was a treat considering um, another Pacific Northwest company. You know, hitting 50 years old. That's that's got to be fun for you. There's so many great brands um, in your neck of the woods, um, and to be able to be a part of documenting that and producing a book that people are going to enjoy and and be able to learn from has got to be a treat for you. Yeah. Yeah. It may be that uh, Keith Jackson wants to, has the time to come on in person and talk to you about exactly what he's done since he acquired the company in in 2005. Uh, He has, of course, many levels of detail and stories to tell that that I don't have. And uh, hey, I I want to tag on the the tail end of this thing. And it's about Jerry. Yeah. when I did the Jerry podcast with you, my focus uh, tended to be a whole lot on uh, their earliest years. Uh, it tended to be a lot on some of their major accomplishments with mountaineering tents and their 
uh, involvement with a lot of the big big name mountaineers back then. And then due to a, a, a financial, uh, he had uh, apparently bought a bunch of products or somehow made a made a commitment and somehow then his financing went through and anyway it forced him to go to a a, a person in Colorado who uh, uh, was part of a corporation and then he got dragged in and dragged in and next thing you know he's part of a of a corporate company and he's uh, living in a skyscraper in Denver with his wife and he and he hates that. He goes to board meetings. He's supposed to wear a tie. Uh, they don't seem to like appreciate his ideas very much. And he said, heck with this. And he left within a year. And that was the last he had any association with Jerry. So I had sort of left the Jerry story that way. And and I wanted to um, kind of carry it on because Jerry um, became very well known in the later years after Jerry left as a as a, a, a downhill ski maker, clothing for for skiers and clothing for cross country skiers as far as that went. And so I recently acquired one of the Jerry ski parkas from those later years after uh, he had left. He had uh, he was long gone. But some of the designs that he and his crew had um, created for downhill skiing uh, were still being made. So I wanted to just point out by showing you this jacket just how good his stuff was, how, how thoroughly thought out the designs were. So we've got here... A jerry coat. You've got their logo as it uh, is that showing? Yep. And there I knocked my coffee cup over on the floor. Oh no. Okay. I knew that was going to happen. <clears throat> so this is totally not the style anymore, right? Everybody favors those little things anymore with the real thin, you know, like this thick. Yep. That would have horrified Jerry himself because he did a lot of research with the Army Quartermaster Corps about what it takes to keep people warm in various states of activity and the thickness of insulation. Anyway, so this is a old-fashioned puffer coat. And how thick is it? Well, I measured it. It's at least three times thicker than my little Patagonia thin thin thing, like you see everybody wearing. Well, so for riding the ski lift in Colorado when it's like 10 or 15 degrees and the wind is blowing, you want this. And what's good about it, it's got a beefy, easy to work number five zipper. <laughs> It zips up into a gorgeous collar that keeps your neck really warm, a high collar, nicely insulated. 
the pockets are insulated, well insulated with down. They all zip. So you're not going to lose things when you take, take a big fall. It's got an inner pocket, again, all zip. So you're not going to lose anything. It's got a drawstring at the base around the hem that cinches up tight to keep your warm air in your core and keep the snow out when you fall. Just so many things right about this jacket that I I really can't fault it for anything. And I just wanted to bring that forward, uh, even though, of course, the Jerry podcast is already there. And uh, so now I've tacked on this piece about the later Jerry that I thought was significant, all based on the fact that I found that in a used store for 25 bucks. Wow. That's great. Well, I guess one, one parting thought to wrap up the Yuko conversation and then we'll end our recording here. Um, I, I guess I just want to plug the book. How do people find the book? They're going to have to actually contact um, Yuko itself. Uh, Yuko uh, now runs under two names. Um, there's the umbrella company, industrialrevolution.com. And Yuko is their primary brand, but they have others. And they're going to have to talk to uh, Keith Jackson about how many books were in the first run and whether any of them are still going to be available to the general public. And then if there's a second printing, uh, he's going to want to see if there's enough demand for it. Okay. So it's not, okay. it's well, not we'll, my book per se. Right. Well, we'll share more information when it becomes more available too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, Bruce, anything else you want to plug before we wrap it here? Just my continued excitement for what you guys are doing, both in the, in the program with the students and, and your archiving, uh, your, your whole thing with Clint, uh, just so pleased. It's so exciting. What well, you're doing. We couldn't do it without you and your help. So you've, you've, uh, you've helped get the archive to the place it's at right now. And we've got a lot of great things in the works too. So thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast for more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the outdoor product design and development YouTube channel, or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.